So if you recall, we talked it with that, based on that verse, we talked about the hallmarks of a healthy church, about what living the gospel life together looks like, being devoted to the word of God, the breaking of bread, prayer and fellowship. Uh, we saw how that played out in the early Jerusalem church and many of the churches that Paul planted and later wrote to. Brought up the example of churches that excelled in these qualities like the Thessalonians where Paul told them now about your love for one another. We don't have to write to you for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. Yet we urge you brothers and sisters to do so more and more. So it uh, lots of really wonderful stuff that was happening in the early church. And if you don't read your New Testament carefully, some, or perhaps even sometimes read between the lines, you might get the false impression that all was just sweetness and light in these churches. After all, if the Thessalonians were more were well if the Thessalonians were well known throughout Achaia and Macedonia for, Macedonia for their love for one another, surely they were living in perfect harmony and all singing kumbaya together, right? But turns out that some of them, in the midst of this wonderful atmosphere of love for one another, were starting to get idle and taking advantage of the generosity of others in the church. And even in such a great church with Paul highly commended, things got a little messy sometimes. In the Jerusalem church itself, where the gospel was bearing incredible fruit and miracles were happening, and the church was growing even in the midst of persecution, they had issues. Uh, one of the issues is best described as racial and ethnic tensions. The Greek-speaking Jews were complaining to the Hebrew-speaking Jews that their widows were being overlooked and short-shrifted in the daily distribution of food. Other places in Acts, Paul and Barnabas, oh, they were, went through so much together in their first missionary journeys. They, uh, they had many triumphs together. They suffered persecution together. They were the best of friends and partners in the gospel. And yet we see in Acts 15 that they had a major disagreement and they parted ways. In Galatians 2, Paul recounts about a major disagreement that he had with the apostle Peter, and he publicly butted heads with them. It seems that even among the founding saints of the church who wrote por major portions of scripture, things got messy sometimes. In today's passage, we see another very messy situation that occurred among genuine believers and to which the gospel provides the ultimate solution. So turn with me, if you haven't already, to the book of Philemon. It's a very short letter. The letter was very likely delivered together with the letter to the Colossians, which we just finished studying. Now, I've kind of struggled about how best to approach or exegete this letter because, you know, if I do the typical sovereign grace style outline of, you know, major premise and three major points to pull out of it, I don't think I would do justice to this letter, which is so beautifully written. 
it is a masterfully written letter. And um, what I'm going to do, I'm going to just read the letter from beginning to end. I'm going to interrupt myself sometimes. I'm going to uh, give some background about the people involved, talk about Paul's gospel relationship with Philemon, and then Paul's masterful appeal on behalf of a man named Onesimus, who was Philemon's runaway slave. This is a very short and personal letter. It follows the same pattern as Paul's other letters. You have a greeting, and then you have a section of thanksgiving and assurance of prayer to the person he's writing to. And there's, then there's the body of the letter, the main point that he wants to express. And then at the end, there's another greeting and a benediction. Even though this is a very short personal letter, it's not like a letter to the whole church like Colossians or Ephesians. It follows the same pattern. So the greeting. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Athia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You notice that Paul starts off by calling himself a prisoner of Christ Jesus. And you probably know that he means that both literally and figuratively. He is literally in prison right now, and figuratively he calls himself a prisoner of Christ Jesus because he has been captivated by the love of God and he is bound to Christ Jesus. Notice one thing that he doesn't call himself in this letter. In other letters, he identifies himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. He doesn't do that this time. He has no need to. He has no need to assert his authority in Jesus Christ because in this letter, he's going to make an appeal on the basis of a personal friendship an appeal on the basis of the partnership in the gospel. Now, in the greeting, Paul also mentions Timothy in his introduction, apparently, because Timothy is with him when he is writing, but this is the last we hear about Timothy in the letter. No disrespect to Timothy, but Paul's pronouns quickly change from we to I because, after all, this is a very, very personal letter from Paul to Philemon. But Paul also nevertheless greets the other people in Philemon's household. Aphia, our sister, could, don't know for sure, but it could very well be Philemon's wife. And Archippus, our fellow soldier, could very well be Philemon's son. I'm guessing he's calling Archippus a fellow soldier because Archippus is in fact a soldier, perhaps in the service of Rome. Um, but you know that other places Paul calls himself and others, his co-workers, as soldiers of Christ Jesus. And it just so happens Archippus is also literally a soldier. And he also greets the church that meets in Philemon's house, which tells us two things. Philemon is likely a local elder, a man of standing in the church. And though this letter is specifically addressed to Philemon, it is meant to be read publicly in the church that's gathered in his house, just like the letter to the Colossians was. Okay, so let's move on 
to the next verses where Paul gives thanks for Philemon's love and faith. He says, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Here again, we see the same elements that we find in Paul's longer letters to, to entire churches. He thanks God for Philemon's, for Philemon's genuine faith in the gospel. And he assures Philemon that he's praying for him, that the fruit of the gospel will abound in his life. Now, Paul is already convinced of the genuineness and earnestness of Philemon's faith because he has personally seen and benefited from the fruit of the faith. He says, for I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed for you. In short, Philemon is the real deal. He's a man who has been transformed by Jesus Christ and the truth of the gospel, and he's living out that truth day by day. So let's get to the body of the letter, which is Paul's plea for Onesimus. He says in verse 8, Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, Yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this is perhaps why he has parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Notice again that Paul does not play the apostle card, although he legitimately could. He appeals to Philemon on the basis of gospel-inspired love. He makes an appeal on behalf of Onesimus. You probably know the backstory. Onesimus was a slave of Philemon and had run away. In an amazing demonstration of God's providence, Onesimus makes it to Rome and somehow runs into Paul. And there, under the preaching and influence of Paul, he is a changed man. He becomes a Christian. Well, actually, we really don't know when he became a Christian, though most commentators would make the reasonable assumption that he became a Christian when he met Paul. You know, he could have been a Christian when he ran away, an, an immature Christian to be sure, but we don't know. Uh, we're just kind of 
um, trying to read between the lines. Anyway, he says that we know that Onesimus was a changed man after spending time with Paul because Paul describes the relationship as that of a father and a son. He says, he became my child. Paul also attested Onesimus as a changed man by doing a little play on words with Onesimus' name. You might know that the word Onesimus means useful. And he says, he used to be useless, but now he's really useful. He is really Onesimus. Paul loves Onesimus dearly as a son, and it pains him to send him back. But he knows it's the right thing to do because he also treasures his relationship with Philemon. It's a little bit of a messy situation, isn't it? Both Onesimus and Philemon are dear to Paul, and he wants to see them reconciled. More than reconciled, he wants them to have a relationship that is far better than the status quo ante, which would be master and slave, but treating each other well and so forth. He wants them to have a relationship as Christian brothers on equal footing. So let's look at verse 17. He says, so if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me your own very self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, Prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be, be graciously given to you. So he says, so if you consider me a partner, receive him as you would receive me. Not only is Paul not playing the apostle card, he is putting himself and Philemon on the same level by calling him a partner. He is making it equally clear, however, that Philemon and Onesimus, or actually that he and Onesimus, Paul and Onesimus, are also on the same level. Onesimus was a runaway slave. Paul was a self-righteous, legalistic Pharisee and persecutor of the church, and both were sinners saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. So he's saying Onesimus is received Onesimus like you would receive me. We're both sinners saved by grace. And by the way, Philemon, so are you. All three of us are debtors to God's grace, his unmerited favor, his mercy and kindness expressed to us in Jesus Christ. So he says, when Onesimus comes, I want you to receive him and show him the same kindness that you would show to me because I love him as I love you. If he did you any wrong or owes you anything, I'll take care of it myself when I come. And here's the only place where Paul kind of plays the apostle card in a backhanded way. He's saying, look, buddy, if it weren't for the fact that I preached the gospel to you, you would be a lost sinner on the way to hell. 
Now, Paul's not intending to be theologically precise here. I'm sure he knows that Philemon could have come to Christ some other way. But it's in a playful way he's saying, look, buddy, you owe me big time. Okay? So final greetings and benediction. He says in verse 23, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So Paul ends his letter as he does typically, passing on the greetings of those who are with him, all of whom, just like Paul, Philemon and Onesimus had their own story of being sinners saved by the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. Mark and Luke ended up writing parts of the New Testament. Aristarchus was one of Paul's traveling companions and ended up in prison with them. Demas, it is sad to say, at some point abandoned Paul when Paul really needed him, and we don't know what happened after that. just like Onesimus had run away from Philemon. Imagine that. They're all people of different walks and stations of life. Some did great things, some not so much. But they all had in common their unending need for the grace of the Lord Jesus, which is why Paul appropriately ends his letter with the benediction, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So thus end, Paul ends his beautifully composed letter to Philemon. It is a masterpiece of persuasion, appealing to the truth and grace of the gospel, appealing to love and friendship in order to persuade someone to do the right thing. So that's the letter in a nutshell. I'd like to give you a few takeaways that we can, I think we can learn from this letter. The first one is the gospel, being transformed by the gospel and being joined to a church, the gospel does not necessarily keep us from conflict or messy situations. We already mentioned in the introduction how even the apostles who wrote the New Testament had conflicts. How much more so do ordinary Joe Schmo Christians like you and me? I can only imagine the community group meeting they had after Onesimus ran away. Some whoever was leading the group says, well, are there any prayer requests this evening? And Philemon raises his hand. He says, I don't know whether to be embarrassed or angry. Onesimus just up and left on me. I was good to him. I don't know why he... I treated him well, just like Paul taught us how to treat our slaves that as on an equal footing, remembering that both our master and his is in heaven. And how does he thank me? He just up and leaves me in a lurch. Now, if you were at that community group meeting, what would you have said? Would you have taken up Philemon's offense and said, yeah, that good-for-nothing, useless Onesimus, I can't believe he did that to you. 
man, I'm so sorry. Or would you have had the courage to gently ask some probing questions? Such as, well, man, can you think of any reasons why he might have left? Did he really know how much you cared about him? Was there anything that you might have said or done that would have caused him to run away? You know, we really don't know the whole story, do we? Perhaps Philemon had, had in fact been mistreated. Perhaps Philemon had indeed mistreated Onesimus in some way. We don't know. Despite all the wonderful qualities and evidence of grace we see in Philemon's life as evidenced in Paul's letter, even godly Christians like Philemon have flaws. Sometimes glaring contradictions with their profession of faith. This is not to excuse them. If things like that are discovered or revealed, they need to be repented of and dealt with to be sure. But the reality is that life gets messy sometimes, doesn't it? Which brings us to the next takeaway. Disagreements or offenses with other believers are not the basis for doubting the genuineness of their relationship with Christ. Now, one of a non-believer's favorite verses to wave in the face of a Christian is Matthew 7, 1. Judge not lest you be judged. And of course, they wave that in our faces out of context, using the verse inappropriately. But you know, sometimes the shoe just might fit and we might would do well to wear it. Of course, I'm not talking about lovingly and patiently confronting a brother's sin in order to help them. But if our knee-jerk reaction to someone's action or speech is, how can they do that and call themselves a Christian? If we say that before we know the whole story or the condition of their heart, then we are, in fact, inappropriately judging. And we should be sobered by Jesus' words in Matthew 7, 2, and 3. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? One of the offenses or stumbling blocks that you might have with Philemon is, if he was such a good Christian like Paul describes, what is he doing owning a slave in the first place? Well, if you have a cursory knowledge of your Bible, and I hope that no one uh, you know, runs for the fainting couch or the smelling sauce, but salts, but you know, the Bible does not categorically, not categorically, condemn the institution of slavery as evil. Okay, it says a lot of other things about slavery. Uh, slavery was common in the Roman Empire and even godly people like Philemon owned slaves. That's why in Ephesians and in Colossians, which we just finished studying, Paul found it necessary to address both slaves and masters. He said, slaves, submit to your masters and respect and work hard for them. Masters, treat your slaves justly and always remember that their master and yours is in heaven, and with him there is no favoritism. 
Perhaps it's a stumbling block to you that the Bible does not categorically condemn slavery as evil. If you think it does, you haven't read your Bible very carefully. I'll tell you what the Bible does indeed condemn. The Bible, doesn't con the Bible does condemn the type of slavery which we are familiar with from our history books, that the race-based slavery that was practiced in America in the 17th and 18th and 19th centuries, the Bible condemns slave traders and people who kidnapped or captured others in order to sell them into slavery. If you look in your Old Testament, the penalty for doing that was the death penalty. You don't do that sort of thing. And slavery in America was indeed made possible by the evil slave trade. And it was Christians like William Wilberforce who helped bring the slave trade to an end. Of course, the Bible also condemns the, the abominations that occurred in American slavery, not only the mistreatment of slaves in general, but also treating them like property to be bought and sold, which often resulted in forced separations of husbands and wives and parents and children. It's a terrible, terrible scar in our history. But an honest look at both the Old and the New Testaments will tell you that the Bible acknowledged the unfortunate reality of slavery, and what it did is actually, it, given the reality of it, it regulated it. In the Old Testament, some people sold themselves into slavery in order to pay their debts. And those same people could be redeemed out of slavery by their next of kin. And I'm not sure how this happened, but the Old Testament also envisioned a situation where someone who had sold himself into slavery could still make money and become rich and redeem himself out of slavery. The Old Testament made it clear that no one was to be a slave for life unless they voluntarily chose to do so. The Bible not only set time limits on slavery, but it also enumerated certain rights of a slave that must be respected. An example, the patriarch Abraham was a very rich man and owned a boatload of slaves. How did he treat them? You're probably familiar with the story about how God promised to bless Abraham with the land and great possessions, and he, how he promised to give him descendants innumerable. Uh, so he was very quick to fulfill the promise of giving him lots of possessions. He was a very, very rich man, but he was very slow, as you know, in fulfilling the promise of giving him heirs. And in Genesis 15, Abraham protests to God, Oh Lord God, what will you give me? For if I continue childless, the heir of my house will be Eliezer of Damascus. And Abraham said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Who was Eliezer of Damascus? He was Abraham's slave. His top slave to be sure, but a slave nonetheless. And he was a member of his household. And if Abraham didn't have children, he was going to inherit everything that Abraham had. Okay. The New Testament also acknowledges the unfortunate reality of slavery, but goes further to undercut slavery as an institution by insisting that both masters and slave are on equal footing in terms of human dignity and their standing before God. Paul says he is, who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and with him there is no favoritism. Same time, the New Testament also affirms the obvious, that you don't want to be a slave if you can help it. Paul put it <coughs> this way in 1 Corinthians 7, 
verses 21 to 23. He says, were you a bondservant when you were called? Don't be concerned about it, but if you can gain your freedom, by all means do so. For he who is called by the Lord is, as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when he was called as a, is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So we are right to be horrified by the abominable slavery as it was practiced in American colonies within the first century of the United States of America. It was a far cry from the temporary economic arrangements that were tolerated and regulated in the Old and New Testament. But that does not mean that every slave owner in 18th and 19th century America was an evil person. I am not willing to go that far because I am not in a position to judge. Remember we said that you know, sometimes even the godliest people have a glaring contradiction in their life. And, you know, what do you do with that? Remember, judge not lest you be judged. I think we have an unfortunate tendency in this day and age to demonize people in the past that don't live up to our standards today. I've been told that 41 out of 55 signers of the Declaration of Independence, the document that says that all men are created equal, were slave owners. That's very, very disappointing to hear. It's very sad. It's a major contradiction with what they profess to believe. Now, does that make all of them evil people? I don't think so. At least I am not in any position to judge because I don't have the whole story. I don't have all of the information that I need to make a judgment. What I'd be most interested in is whether they participated in the abominations that were all too prevalent in the institution of American slavery or whether they treated their slaves justly and with dignity. Another historical figure from our past who was actually looked up to in the church is Jonathan Edwards, the great preacher and theologian of the Great Awakening. I would have no doubt that he's been quoted many times from our pulpits. It pained me to learn that Jonathan Edwards also owned slaves. I wish he hadn't. I really wish he hadn't. But I don't think I have the right to discount or dismiss everything else he had to say and I don't have the right to question his salvation or the sincerity of his faith. I just don't have enough reliable information to make that con conclusion. We do know that he owned slaves, but we also know that he wasn't entirely comfortable with the institution of slavery. We also know that at least a couple of his slaves became baptized believers and full members of his church. And we also know that his son, Jonathan Edwards the Younger, became a prominent abolitionist. We just don't know the whole story, do we? Because of the gospel, this is point three, the third takeaway, because of the gospel, we should believe and encourage the best about our fellow believers. 
In 1 Corinthians 13, which is Paul's famous treatise on love, he said that love hopes all things and believes all things. It means that love believes the best about people, that it does not assume the worst about someone when a question arises about their words, deeds, or attitudes. Love inquires and then hopes and believes in the innocence of a brother until there is irrefutable evidence to the contrary. And if guilt is indeed discovered, love doesn't condemn, but seeks restoration and reconciliation, just like we saw in our letter to Philemon. I can imagine when Onesimus ran away and ended up meeting Paul in Rome, he may have given Paul an earful about being mistreated by Philemon. Again, I'm just speculating. Paul would have had no way of knowing whether any of that was true. But he continued to believe the best about Philemon even as he began to help Onesimus look to the state of his own soul. A fourth takeaway, the gospel puts us all on a level playing field. We have no basis for insisting on our rights. We really don't know the particulars about the relationship between Philemon and Onesimus when Onesimus ran away. I'm sure from both of their perspectives, they probably both protested that their supposed rights had been violated. But when faced with the truth of the gospel, that we are sinners deserving of the wrath of God and have been saved by the grace of Jesus Christ, his unmerited favor, our appeals to our rights look a little silly, don't they? If I think in terms of my rights, I start to think about what I justly deserve apart from the grace of Jesus Christ, and that is not pretty. Lord, please don't deal with me according to my rights, according to what I deserve. Please deal with me according to your mercy. Neither do we have any basis for appealing to rank. Paul certainly didn't pull rank in his appeal to Philemon, and neither should we. We are all equally in need of the grace of God through Jesus Christ. And finally, a fifth takeaway the fruit of the gospel is peace and reconciliation, and it brings glory to Christ. The fruit of the gospel is peace and reconciliation, which brings glory to Christ. In this letter, Paul makes a beautiful and masterful appeal for peace and reconciliation between Philemon and Onesimus. Unfortunately, the letter ends, and the Bible itself doesn't give us any indication as to what happened after that. Was Paul's appeal successful? We don't know, at least not from the Bible. We have other sources that give us hope. First, as I said, this letter was read publicly to the church in Philemon's house, and Onesimus himself was among those delivering the letter. So that certainly put Philemon on the spot, didn't it? I can imagine... Onesimus delivering the letter with fear and trepidation. And after it was read, him just humbly begging Philemon for forgiveness. And I would like to think of Philemon saying, yeah, that's enough, brother. Thank yes, certainly. I embrace you, brother. 
There's also some extra biblical evidence that tells us that this story not only had a happen ending, but a very remarkable ending because toward the end of the first century, one of the church fathers, Ignatius, he was on his way to Rome during the persecution where he was going to be martyred. And on his way, he wrote letters to several churches. And he wrote to the church of Ephesus and he addressed the bishop of Ephesus whose name happened to be Onesimus. Now, was that the same guy? I think he was because in the letter, Ignatius uses the same play on words with Onesimus' name that Paul did in the letter. So can you imagine that? A runaway slave, he's restored, he becomes a brother in Christ, becomes a vibrant member of the church, and he ends up being the bishop of Ephesus. Now, how cool is that? That's what the gospel does. Oh, Lord Jesus, thank you for your grace and your mercy. Lord, we don't have to look too far deep within us before we notice so many not only the sins of our past, but the sins that we still struggle with. Lord, our only plea is not any goodness that's within us. Our only plea is your mercy. So, Lord, we dare not judge the failings of others. But, Lord, we seek to help them as we help ourselves and remind them of the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ that forgives them and helps to transform them and conform them to your image. Lord, thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for your grace and mercy, for dying on the cross for our sins. Amen, amen, and amen.